Chapter 3. Marilla Cuthbert is surprised. Marilla came briskly forward as Matthew opened the door. But when her eyes fell on the odd little figure in the stiff, ugly dress, with the long braids of red hair and the eager, luminous eyes, she stopped short in amazement. Matthew Cuthbert, who's that? She ejaculated. Where's the boy? There wasn't any boy, said Matthew wretchedly. There was only her. Welcome to Kindred Spirits, a conversation about the ways Anne Shirley has shaped our lives. I'm Jean Danielle. And I'm Erica. And we are Kindred Spirits. This week we're reading Chapter 3 of Anne of Green Gables as Crisis Therapists. <laughs> Amazing. So I'll start us off with a summary. First things first, Marilla is surprised right away she gets down to business. Matthew realizes he forgot to ask this child's name. Marilla and Matthew demonstrate how woefully unequipped they are to deal with emotions. Marilla says unromantic fiddlesticks and asks to be called Cordelia. Marilla claims she has never been in the depths of despair. We then discover Marilla has clean sheets in every room, even the one she wasn't planning to use, and calls Marilla out on language conventions when Marilla says goodnight. Marilla lets Matthew smoke in the kitchen. Matthew surprises Marilla by saying he wants to keep Anne, and then everyone goes to bed. A lot is going on here, and when I was thinking about this chapter, I was struck by how everyone is being forced to confront profound uncertainty. And I wondered, what do you do when you face profound uncertainty? Uh, and one of the things that I do when helping people is try to listen to other helping professionals for advice. So to guide some of our conversation today, I wanna to look at a model suggested by Katie Morton, who is a professional therapist with an amazing educational YouTube channel. And she has seven suggestions for dealing with uncertainty. And I want to look at her. Okay, before you get serious, I need to tell you how I deal with uncertainty. Yeah. Particularly how I've been dealing with uncertainty this week by actually reading Anne of Green Gables, which should not be surprising, but I love that that's one of my real strategies. And also planning things that could not possibly be planned and or wasting, no, not wasting, expending energy on things that don't need to be planned. Like, what is Santa Claus going to bring my household this year? I am Santa Claus. I am making those decisions. And I am much better at dealing with the uncertainty around what is Santa Claus bringing to my household than um, am I going to get to see any family at Christmas? Mm. So escapism, both uh, in terms of literature and uh, yeah, and, and slight. Uh... Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> A little bit of disassociation because you're making your decisions through the idea of being Santa rather than being Erica. Hmm. Oh, we could have such an interesting conversation. I don't want to actually. I feel like this is not the time for it. Counselor. Uh, <laughs> Katie Morton uh, suggests seven ways of dealing with uncertainty. And Obviously, it is completely anachronistic to think that this modern therapist would be the way that uh, Anne or Marilla, who are the two I'd like to focus on, although incidentally, uh, also Matthew or, or Rachel, 
it would be completely anachronistic to think that they would know her seven steps. But of course, psychologists study what people are already do to cope with things as they make these frameworks. So there is a little bit of chicken and egg around people's coping mechanisms. And one thing that I openly love about Lucy Maud Montgomery as an author is her attention to emotional detail and how people cope with things. So even when she is writing before modern language of psychology, I see a lot of modern diagnoses of mental distress and modern coping mechanisms clearly in her literature, even if it's not named in modern ways. So I wanted to look at how Marilla and Anne each are coping with this chapter's uncertainty in their life. And how do those coping mechanisms compare to Katie Morton's seven steps and how do they compare with each other? I'll share in the show notes the seven steps in written form and a link to Katie Morton's long form video on the topic. But step one, dealing with uncertainty, is to build your support system. So I would like to think of who is Marilla's support system and who is Anne's and how do they each work to build such a support system if they do indeed at all? Oh my goodness. I mean, my gut response when you ask that question is neither of them has one. It's yep. already been established that Rachel Lind is the closest thing Marilla has to a friend, but you couldn't really call her one, and that Anne is completely alone in the world. We could push harder on that, and Matthew is a support for Marilla, and Marilla just doesn't realize it. Rachel is a support for Marilla, Marilla just won't admit it. One of the things that strikes me is I think they both don't have and recognize their support systems as much as I would like for them. Uh, but it's a bit different. Anne doesn't seem to have a support system and is actively trying to get one and wants one. Marilla has an insufficient one and is probably, I perceive her as so self-sufficient according to herself that she doesn't want to admit to needing it even insofar as she does have it. Because I do see already Matthew and Rachel being a support system for Marilla but Marilla being resistant to it in both. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I think Matthew is the key here. Matthew is already part of Anne's support system, even though he doesn't even know her name yet, which is a detail I completely missed every time I've ever read this book. He doesn't know her name until chapter three. That's a great literary example. We have a parallel experience to the character because we're just so enraptured with how fast she's talking and all that she's saying and we don't realize we don't know her name yet either because the book is called Anne of Green Gables of course we know her name so we well, lose track I was so young the first time I had this read to me that I've always known her name is Anne even if I hadn't been able to figure it out from the title so they both don't have the ideal support system for the uncertainty that they are being thrown into and I think it's very interesting, the position, we spoke about him at length last time, but Matthew, who is shy and deeply uncomfortable, is in fact an essential support to these two ladies, the young lady and the older lady. Both really depend upon Matthew in a way that I think Anne yearns for, Marilla doesn't want to acknowledge, and Matthew himself is terrified have. I would guess that Matthew, if pressed, would 
not be able to recognize his role as part of Marilla's support system, that he would think, oh, she doesn't need me. She can get along just fine without me. Mm-hmm. That I don't think that is backed up at any point in the text, but that is what I imagine Matthew would have to say about that. I think it's really important to emphasize that they're adopting a boy. Why do they want a boy? Because Matthew needs help. Marilla doesn't. That's why they don't need a girl. That is explicitly stated. Yeah, so it's interesting because clearly to run this home and this farm, they've needed both Matthew and Marilla. And they reach a point where they can't do it. Just the two of them. They have recognized this. They've recognized that they cannot do it, just the two of them, which I think might be a profound recognition for them. But even in that recognition, it is very much put on Matthew. Matthew is the one who cannot do it alone. That's why we need a boy. Well, spoiler alert, later on, Marilla will also realize that she's unable to maintain her duties at Green Gables by herself. But that's after... Um, I might be getting my math wrong, but I think that's after like six or seven years of living with Anne. I don't know that she would have arrived at that realization without learning from Anne. Anne as an instigator for lots of people's self-revelation is the theme of this novel and series of novels, arguably, and of course, the theme of our own podcast. How does Anne provoke people to become more self-aware? Now, support system, of course, isn't necessarily just other people. It can be routine and structure. And I do think that's where Marilla is probably more self-aware of having constructed her support system. I actually noticed a detail at the end of the chapter that Anne goes to bed, Matthew goes to bed, Marilla puts the dishes away and then goes to bed. Mm -hmm. So, yes, routine. Well, and that is also an excellent segue to... uh, Point number two in dealing with... I actually wanted to ask you one more question about support system. Yes. Would you consider Anne's window friends part of her support system and her imagination? I think absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up. That Anne is trying to build a support system for herself anywhere she can. So while love from a reliable and kind adult human might be ideal... In the absence of that, Anne will build her support system. I would give Anne an A plus for how she does step one of dealing with uncertainty, and I would not give Marilla a very generous grade on this one. But those relative grades might vary by step. Because step two is where I give Marilla the A plus of all A pluses. Focus on what we can control. I think that's a summary of Marilla's personality. Focus on what you can control. And this is, of course, a very precarious one to even try to inflict upon a child. Anne has a very short list of what she can control. But she does try to control what she can control, which is her imagination and her story. Yes, and actually, Focusing on what can be controlled puts Anne and Marilla in direct conflict with each other at possibly one of the most iconic moments of this series, which is when Anne says, call me Cordelia. And Marilla asks her if that's actually her name, 
Marilla wants to know what the truth is because then she feels like she's in control and wants to decide what she's going to be called because then she's in control. And so their coping mechanisms, I hadn't thought about it this way before, but their coping mechanisms are butting up against each other in that moment. The dispute about the name, so to recount, will you please call me Cordelia? She said eagerly, call you Cordelia? Is that your name? No, it's not exactly my name, but I would love to be called Cordelia. It's such a perfectly elegant name. I don't know what on earth you mean. If Cordelia isn't your name, what is? And Shirley reluctantly faltered forth the owner of that name. Ah. Oh. And one of the things Marilla says in response is, Anne is a real good, plain, sensible name. And Anne says, I'm not ashamed of it. I Only I like Cordelia better. And... I think this actually gets to the heart of what they each think of themselves as being able to control. Anne thinks she can control how romantic and how uplifting and how cheerful and she can control the emotions of the circumstances or the story. And I think Marilla's sense of control has to be grounded in pragmatic reality for her. The fact that Anne is plain and sensible is not disputed whether or not that's a good thing or a terrible thing is where they vary. I absolutely just can't think of Anne with the knee as plain and sensible. <laughs> You've met my sister, who is Anne with the knee, and I think she'll forgive me for talking about her in a public forum. There's much but, I admire about your sister, but not plainness or sensibility. Plain and sensible is not how I would describe her, and I don't think it's how she would want to be described. And she's half named after this Anne with an E and half named after our Aunt Anne with an E who is sensible in the best sense of the word. And again, I hope she doesn't mind me talking about her. I have only good things to say. She is sensible, but plain, absolutely not. She's so much fun to be around. And so Marilla say, saying this and Anne agreeing with her and objecting to the plainness and sensibleness of her name just strikes me as so funny because I think of Anne as a name for someone who has a lot of spirit and a sense of humor and a finely developed imagination. I, I mean, I think of the name Anne as belonging to someone like Anne Shirley and how could she be Cordelia? Cordelia is Lear's betrayed youngest daughter, like, mm -hmm. which must be where Ellen Montgomery got it from probably even where Anne got it from actually yeah. um no I just Cordelia just sounds silly and Anne sounds perfect and so it's so strange to me that she objects to it for for this reason that I don't relate to it is interesting also this idea of owning a name you know Anne is the owner of this name and you know she doesn't have very many worldly possessions and yet, being named Anne is one of the things she does own. And, you know, Ellen Montgomery definitely had strong feelings about names. She famously did not want to be called or addressed as Lucy, though she openly admitted it to being her name. So I think she herself maybe had an in-between position here where she admitted that she owned the name Lucy, but please don't call me that. 
So I think she's sympathetic to, to both of her characters in this example. And it's hard to know with literature how much it's influenced time since, but I, I find it always fascinating reading old literature to see which names seem locked in their time and place and which ones are timeless. And certainly Matthew, Anne, Rachel, these are all pretty timeless names, at least from my perspective a little over a century later. Marilla, I imagine just sounded old when Marilla was young. Well, and that makes it an especially interesting choice when Anne names one of her children Marilla. Oops, sorry, spoiler alert. Anne has children. But who goes by Rilla? Marilla. (laughs) (laughs) But goes by Rilla also doesn't like her given name. (laughs) Yeah, it's so interesting. The thing that always strikes me so much with character names, changing subjects a little bit, but in Jane Austen novels... Jane Austen writes so many characters named Jane. That is not something I would ever think to do as an author. That I, you know, no matter how common my name was, if my name were Jane, I highly, highly doubt I would name a character Jane. On the idea of focusing on what can be controlled, of course, Anne is trying to control her narrative. Children have very limited control over their own lives. But here she is arriving in a potential new home. And I understand this impulse of, can I please have a new narrative? May I have a new start? Can I set a new tone for my life? This is the only thing I can control. And of course, she actually can't control that. The adults won't let her. No, you can't be coordinated. But there is a small comfort in Marilla's sheer pragmatism, which is that she doesn't understand why spelling would matter and therefore gives in to Anne's strong preference that at least make me Anne with an E. And because she's so pragmatic that who cares how it's spelled? That well, but Anne's, uh, I'm sorry, Marilla's pursuit of the truth actually serves Anne in this moment, that Anne is actually Anne with an E. That is her legal name, how it's spelled on her legal documents. I'm assuming birth certificates existed at this point in history. Yeah. That may be false. Um, but Anne with an E is actually her name, and so Marilla will call her Anne with an E because to do otherwise would be false. And just as a further development of her, of Anne's insistence upon controlling the narrative, she, even to Marilla, immediately talks about the white way of delight and the lake of shining waters. Marilla is perplexed, but it means that you know, Anne has deeply internalized, this is the story. And I don't think Anne thinks of herself as a liar, but Marilla seems to have such a pragmatic view of truth that she seems to, which of course, this will become an important theme, so I don't want to overly discuss their competing visions of what is true. But I think at the heart of their competing visions of what is true that is relevant to this chapter is it's about control. And wants creativity because that gives her control. Marilla wants reality because that's what she can control. And so they're each dealing with their uncertainty in a way that's externally very different. But if we look at these coping techniques, I don't think are different as coping mechanisms. Yeah, I I would agree with that. The thing that is most different in our perception of them is age that 
Marilla is an adult and as a child, and therefore both in terms of perception and I think reality, Marilla has the capacity to be more in control. Step three, practice gratitude. What are each character grateful for in this chapter? And do they express it's starting any? to feel like a test that <laughs> I didn't prepare for? You have prepared for this test your whole life. I absolutely have. I don't have an answer ready for this question, though. <laughs> well, Anne is... Anne claims to be in the depths of despair, and I would extrapolate that to perhaps thinking that she doesn't think she's grateful for anything in this moment. In the moment when she claims she's in the depths of despair. Although immediately after that, she does say, one can dream just as well in a skimpy nightdress as in a lovely trailing one. Mm-hmm. So by extraction, she is, as always, grateful for her imagination. She has her imagination. One might even argue that an imagination is necessary for gratitude. Say more about that. Well, when you've had... When one has had a, as deprived an existence as Anne Shirley has up until this point, you need to know how to look for things to be grateful for, and that requires a developed imagination. To be able to find any beauty or compassion at all in the life that she's lived so far, and we'll obviously get to this later, you need to have an imagination. Not to make up things that aren't there, but to be able to perceive things that might get lost otherwise. To see the best in what is there. Yes. There are many folks in the world, and I imagine Marilla possibly amongst them, who are deeply concerned about the fine line between imagination and delusion. But willful imagination and hope is a often necessary and important coping technique. And I love what you pointed out about the, the dreams and how Anne recognizes she can dream just as well. Well, she's actually going to say later in this book that she thinks you can dream better when you don't have velvet curtains and marble hallways around you because you don't have those things around you, so you can dream about them and it's more fun. So There's that's her added perspective from later on. I mean, as somebody who often finds myself counseling people who are in times of uncertainty or crisis, a thing that I have found myself saying a lot that I have to work on internalizing for myself is you can be in the depths of despair and have no denial about what's wrong. And I certainly am personally adamantly opposed to any kind of positive thinking techniques that are rooted in denial or dismissing people's pain. I don't think that that's helpful. So one of the things that I practice is saying, what else is true? So there's no attempt to deny that the bad things are bad or that they are real, but to not let them control the story because they're almost never the whole story. What else is true? So these bad things are bad. The suffering is bad. This uncertainty is bad and it is painful. But what else is true? What is good? What is hopeful? What is possible? and demonstrates more in the previous chapter, but admittedly that's when she thought things were going well, this deep capacity for gratitude, this deep ability to see the absolute best, 
that what Matthew saw as a very ordinary road, because it was, she saw enchantment and beauty. That is also there. I struggle with my own hypothetical question here more when it comes to Marilla. What is Marilla grateful for? In just a flip through the chapter just now I can't find anything we could make assumptions we could make guesses yeah and of course I mean this is just nothing uh, is pointed to yeah this is a therapist framework and of course it's possible Marilla's not going through all of the steps and none of us do at any given moment I think there are things that I think Marilla ought to be grateful for which is spoiled hindsight external bringing Anne back anyway was an epitome of what kind of good person Matthew is and how she's so lucky to have him in her life though I understand she might not perceive it that way in this moment because this might be like the epitome of like oh Matthew well and it's because Matthew calls her out on not being that kind of person Marilla says we can't keep her what good would she be to us and Matthew says, very appropriately, because this is a child they're talking about, we might be some good to her. How could Marilla possibly recognize in this moment that she should be grateful for Matthew when he's calling her out on her bad behavior? Yeah. I do believe that that is one of the most poignant sentences in the entire series. And that, of course, I'll claim that a lot. But we might be some good to her. And this is one of those moments where his lack of saying much amplifies the power of what he pushes himself to say. That to me seems like that is a sentence that has been brewing in him the entire ride home from the train station. Slowly, maybe not always self-aware but to get to that moment you know it wouldn't be a sudden snap of a finger declaration for matthew as he's being presented to us we might be some good to her oh matthew cuthbert i believe that child has bewitched you maybe yes maybe she's just a child and marilla's not teach treating her that way well now she's a real interesting little thing oh Say what you will about the 80s adaptation, this scene in it is extremely well done. That Matthew delivers this line the way I hear it in my head now. Mm -hmm. Dealing with uncertainty, step four from Katie Morton. This one might be a bit convicting for some of our characters. Be kind to others. I actually think Marilla does a pretty good job with this. She decides not to put Anne into the servant's room off the kitchen that she had been planning to put the boy into, which that's just oh gender sad that she was planning to put the boy in there in the first place, that they were adopting a child to be unpaid labor. And thank goodness they got Anne instead because that ends up not being what Anne is, thankfully. Um, she allows Matthew to smoke because it's the only way he has of dealing with his emotions. That's a fascinating throwaway line. Um, she, you know, she 
gives Anne a place to sleep. She gives Anne food. She lets Matthew smoke. She's maybe, I know I'm skipping ahead to step five, but she's even kind to herself by sticking to her routine, putting away the dishes before bed. She actually does a pretty good job of this, I think. She perceives herself as a kind person. And I don't mean that as a critique, because I think when somebody believes that of themselves, it creates the aspirational behavior to rise up to that duty. If that's your story of yourself, which I've used that phrase kind of telling your own story of yourself as something about Anne, but Marilla certainly has a backstory of herself according to herself. And I think kind and dutiful would probably be amongst her self-understanding, that she does what is kind, she does what is dutiful, she does what is proper, perhaps not quite to the extreme of Rachel, but I think she's within that realm of proper ladies of a certain age in a certain society that do things properly. That includes kindness. She's pragmatic, she's no nonsense, but she's not cruel or mean to Anne. Throughout the chapter, I feel like I'm watching these wheels turning in her head of trying to reconcile competing expectations of herself and of the situation. She's trying to combine being practical, which was, it was a practical decision to get a boy, this is not a boy, with being proper and taking good care of a little girl, even if it is just for the evening, even if it's just for one evening. Well, where should a little girl sleep? What should a little girl be sleeping in? She's, it's foreign to her because she's not experienced with little girls, except for having been one quite some time ago, but that's not nothing. Are we sure? Well, you know, there's certainly- sure Marilla and Matthew were young once upon a time? Well, and you know, in literature and in real life, there's so many older people where you wonder that. And so to use a different author I love in this conversation, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who says famously very early on in Little Prince, all grown-ups were children first, but so few of them remember it, which I think is so important. All grown-ups were children first. And you can be empathetic and kind to children just by remembering. You don't even have to be imaginative. Usually for empathy for others, we have to use some degree of imagination. To be empathetic to younger people, we can just use memory. It's actually an easier bar. Somebody could give entire workshops uh, about that topic in children's ministry, which I have. So I don't want to go too much on this tangent, but Marilla was a little girl once and, and it's hard to imagine. And yet I do think there's some degree of empathy that given how gendered society was, this empathy of what does a little girl need to go to bed is something that Marilla is going to do better than Matthew, even though Matthew is quite loving in his way. And so she strives to be kind. She doesn't, and I, I want to really, I guess, be kind to Marilla here. It isn't kind to set up false hopes. And so I think while it is a pit of despair for Anne, unless the decision is firmly, you are staying here forever, leading her on in any way, shape or form would not be a kindness. And so Marilla- no, it wouldn't. And yet I don't think Ma what Matthew is doing in bringing her back to Green Gables is leading Anne on 
in any way because I, I believe that Matthew has made up his mind to keep Anne by the time she's gotten into the cart with him. <laughs> he may not be able to say that, but it's clear by the time he says we might be of some good, good to her that he's made his decision. He knows it might not be the household decision, so he won't say to Anne, we're definitely keeping you. But I think he just can't see any other way forward. And so it's not oh, absolutely. And being I, unkind to Anne. I think there's this fascinating, as we mentioned in our last conversation, these dual perceptions of Matthew, you know, is he just shy and quiet does he just not get it does he not understand human nature and he openly admits to being perplexed by human nature and behavior a lot but here's this beautiful moment towards the end of the chapter where matthew may be confused by girls and women as a category but my golly he knows his sister and that to me is really clear he says i could hire a french boy to help me said Matthew, and she'd be company for you. I'm not suffering for company, said Marilla shortly, and I'm not going to keep her. Well, now it's just as you say, of course, Marilla, said Matthew. He sees through Marilla better than Marilla sees through Marilla. I don't see this him as, this is not him acquiescing to giving up Anne at all. It's he's calling a bluff so he can go to bed. This is probably a coping technique for living with Marilla. You know, if you want a bedtime, just call the bluff. But I mean, and this is an interpretive question. Perhaps he could believe that she's going away the next day. But to me, it really smells of just he knows how to play her. I'm not sure he knows that's what he's doing. <laughs> Yeah, there is this question of how deep is his self-awareness below his own surface. Yeah, I think he probably knows that arguing with Marilla is not going to do anything, but he's said his piece and now he's going to give her space and she probably, well, she is going to think about it and realize that he's right. But I don't know if he's aware of all of that. Well, process. And it, he may be on some subconscious level because they've been living together their whole lives. There's also the question of we had it foreshadowed in chapter one that when Marilla, uh, Marilla notes that when Matthew makes up his mind, he does it so infrequently that she goes along with it. She said well, that that's, through Lent. That's point so now it Matthew's seems that Matthew's made up his too. mind. Sorry, I didn't hear what you just said. That's that's pointed out with Matthew's smoking also, that Matthew seldom smoked, for Marilla set her face against it as a filthy habit, but at certain times and seasons he felt driven to it, and then Marilla winked at the practice, realizing that a mere man must have some vent for his emotions. This is such a hilarious sentence, because Matthew is so much more in touch with his emotions than Marilla is, and the idea that smoking is a vent for emotions is just a really strange idea. Well, and also it's another example of, well, Matthew doesn't ask for having his way very often. So I'll let him have it when he does want it. 
Well, one of the really sweetly subversive things that we see throughout this series around gender identity is at once it's a book of its time and gender identity is rooted into people's behaviors and expectations. That's why it's such a big deal that we're, it's a girl instead of a boy. That's why where is it proper for a boy or a girl to sleep are so different. So it's absolutely a book of its time. And yet there are subversions and it's not just going to be and subverting expectation the narrative of the time of the author but frankly pretty dominant still is that women are emotional and men are not and we tell this story even when it's objectively not true right so marilla's even buying into this like well you know even men can have emotions and you point out rightly erica of course He's more in touch with his emotions than she is. And yet I think she buys into kind of her time and subcultures default narrative that she must be more emotional than Matthew. Even when they're not, like even when plainly it's not that way. It, I wonder if it also has to do with the kind of emotion. It becomes clear later on that Marilla has um, some anger management issues, but Matthew, doesn't the emotion that Matthew experiences and expresses the most in the text is love. Marilla will get there, but that's not her her default. She goes to anger and these sort of like big splashy emotions. And so maybe she just doesn't see that Matthew is having feelings because they're so different than the ones that she has. Mm -hmm. I think that's just an important life lesson that people will have feelings differently than you do. And there are so many tensions in relationships, whether they're romantic or parental or to child, where people are mad at each other for not showing the proper emotion for the circumstance, but it's based on an assumption that they aren't, which isn't even necessarily true because it's not being expressed the way you would express that emotion. So I do find that just a really great point. And when we look at the emotional interactions between these characters, when are they miscommunicating, in fact, feeling something very similar? And when are they, in fact, feeling something very different? Because it's some of each. Absolutely. Can we actually skip to point number six about the pit of despair? Yes. Because Marilla again such an amazing example of emotional denial and asks her if she's ever been in the depths of despair and marilla says i've never been in the depths of despair and then anne asks her if she's ever tried to imagine marilla just says no and there's actually a line again in the 80s adaptation that is not in the book but that fits so perfectly in marilla's mouth and she goes on to elaborate, to despair is to turn one's back on God. Mm. And it becomes this judgmental thing of herself, of Anne, of anyone who expresses despair that you're turning your back on God if you enter into the depths of despair. So I think what Marilla is saying when she's never been in the depths of despair is that she is unwilling to admit and 
we'll learn later that Marilla has quite a tragic backstory, mm-hmm. actually because of her anger management issues, that she had a failed engagement because she refused to speak to her fiancé after an argument, and they never spoke again, and then he went and married someone else. I have a really hard time believing that she was not in the depths of despair after that mm-hmm. interaction. But I don't have a hard time believing that her narrative to herself was that she wasn't. Absolutely. That she thinks that she thinks she's telling Anne the truth. So And that it's really important to her that she's telling Anne the truth about this, not that she's denying something that did happen. Yeah, don't go into the pit of despair. And of course, Anne just flings herself into the pit of despair. But the pit of despair is familiar, which is its own level of tragedy, but we all find comfort in that which is familiar. And being in despair is something that Anne knows how to do. And upstairs in the East Gable, a lonely, heart-hungry, friendless child cried herself to sleep. But that was what she was going to do and had done the night before and what she had probably done the night before and before. So, which is also of course tragic, but it's familiar. Marilla and Matthew are not as familiar with having a lonely, hard, hungry, friendless child crying in their home. But Anne knows how to be that and do that. On a much less important note, I really want to emphasize to all of the pedantic fundamentalists who say that the 80s adaptation is the only good adaptation ever, that it also added storyline and phrases not found in the book. That is not your winning argument against other adaptations. No, that is definitely not something that adaptation has going in its favor. I will never claim that it does. <laughs> no, you, it's just one of the, the, go-tos of the uh i will just say that this specific line coming out of marilla's mouth works for me yeah in this i just want the 80s script with the modern cast because i think the modern casting was amazing and the 80s script was better so that upsets everybody which you know compromises that upset everybody is sort of where i live in my anne of green gables uh, taste, liturgical taste, musical taste, etc. That's just, you You can just say compromises. Compromises always upset everybody. <laughs> yes, I'm offensively via media. I'm sorry for making an Anglican joke in a good Presbyterian podcast. Don't go into the pit of despair as Katie Morton step six to, to ground our conversation. Anne flings herself into the pit of despair and Marilla denies that the pit of despair exists. Step seven which will really be more coming up in next chapter. So we'll have a limited amount to talk about here. Build your contingency plan. So when you are uncertain, well, what else are you going to do? And I would note that in our previous chapter, when Anne thought she was not going to be picked up at the train station, she was building a contingency plan. It was a problematic 11-year-old's contingency plan but it was one. I'm going to sleep in that tree. And I find that really remarkable 
in great part because it shows that things go wrong for Anne enough that building contingency plans is nearly automatic for her. She knows how to come up with an idea of what I'm going to do when this all goes awry. And I would love to get your feedback on this, Erica, if you think this is true. I think Marilla believes that she controls her circumstances and her life enough that she doesn't build contingency plans because nothing's going to go not according to plan. Thank you very much. And she's actually far more blindsided by this kind of scenario than Anne. Can I ask you a follow-up question to that, though? If that's the case, why does Marilla have clean sheets ready to go on every bed in the house? I don't currently have a spare room where I live. And if I did, I'm quite certain I would not keep sheets on the bed because of unexpected visitors. I would keep just a bedspread on the bed and then put clean sheets on when I knew someone was coming. Hmm. I mean, I suppose I just assumed people who have beds keep clean sheets on all the beds in their house. Just as a matter of like being proper and housekeeping, that it just every room should be clean. Now I'm trying to remember what my parents do with the spare room bed. I think they have a... I'm going to have to ask them. We can uh, follow up on this next week because I, I honestly don't know what I would do. I was just surprised by the fact that Marilla could change tack that quickly and say, well, I, because she made up a bed in the room off the kitchen for the boy they were expecting and then said, well, no, Anne's not sleeping there. I'm going to have her sleep in the East Gable room instead. But she didn't need to make up that bed. That bed was already made up. That's why I questioned it was because no, that... there seemed to be a difference of behavior. That's interesting, and um, I wonder as well, though, is, is hospitality culture a thing that just makes you always have a contingency plan for somebody sleeping over? Or, But they're not portrayed as hyper-social people, Matthew and Marilla, who would be having house guests all the time. So I think you bring up a fascinating question, and I'm not sure what I think. Also, you've reminded me of Queen Lucy of Spare Room. Yes. Chronicles of Narnia. Lucy of the Spare Room. Well, and Spare Rooms, Spare Ooms will come up again in this book, too. Uh, so building a contingency plan is about what if this doesn't go the way I hope or expect it to go. And of course, what we hope and what we expect don't always align either. What we hope and what we expect even being the same thing is kind of the defining trait of being what we call an optimist, which not all of us are all of the time. So I definitely- Is that a personal call out? I would say that there's usually a considerable gap between what I hope for and what I expect. So either way, I feel like I'm a strong advocate and example of contingency plans. The, the thing about dealing with uncertainty, whether we're talking about Anne and Marilla in this chapter or most of humanity during the COVID pandemic or other things in our own lives is certainty is always actually a delusion. You're never actually certain about what's coming tomorrow. Sometimes we have enough of a prolonged experience of certain regularities that we have a an educated and usually in fact even true 
set of expectations for tomorrow. But certainty is never real. So we're always you know, dealing with uncertainty. It's just, are we admitting that we're dealing with uncertainty? What are the threshold? You know, what is our threshold of an unexpected thing that will get us to admit, oh, I don't know what's happening next. I'm still thinking about your question of whether Marilla thinks she's so in control that she doesn't need a contingency plan. And I'm wondering if it's actually that Marilla is so in control that that is her contingency plan, that she has sheets on all the beds. She has crab apple preserves in the pantry, clearly, because they're on the plate. I'm sure she has enough preserves for the whole year that she preserved herself that are in the pantry. Is it possible that it's not that she thinks she doesn't need a contingency plan, but that all of this planning and attempts to control her environment is her contingency plan? Yes. I think, you know, with anything like, you know, Katie Morton's seven steps for dealing with uncertainty, these are attempts at formulating descriptors of what people who seem to be coping are already doing. So the delineations between them aren't absolute. And so what you're making me think is that uh, focusing on what we can control is, yeah, as you're saying, that's great. It is, in fact, Marilla's contingency plan. Because control the, of what you can the uncertainty of having an orphan girl instead of an orphan boy show up at her house expecting to live there is not an uncertainty that Marilla has planned for. But she, as the one doing the woman's work on a farm, and I'm saying that as like a category of tasks, not as a gendered thing, she's dealing with other kinds of uncertainty on a daily, weekly, seasonal, and annual basis that she's always thinking about. So just the food planning, she has to think about planting at a certain time of year. She has to think about cooking every day. She's cooking on a wood-fired range, most likely, which means in order to get dinner on at dinner time, she needs to light the stove by a certain time in the morning, and she needs to have things cooking by a certain time in the early afternoon afternoon she's always dealing with the uncertainty of having a really slow food chain just as one example so she she actually has a lot of practice with uncertainty which is part of the reason i think she's able to be so practical when anne shows up and anne also has a lot of practice dealing with uncertainty and i think their experience is clear in this chapter. Are there any ways that you deal with uncertainty that you have found parallels with an Anne and Marilla's behavior in this chapter that you'd be willing to publicly admit to for better or worse? Once again, I'm finding myself relating to perhaps a less sympathetic character in this chapter. I have been canning my food um, and, you know, using a slow food chain as much as possible recently. So at the moment I have what I hope will be a winter's supply of 
pasta sauce and canned tomatoes in the pantry. And I know this is a way, this is something a lot of people have been doing during the pandemic as evidenced by the complete absence of glass jars for canning, for home canning in grocery stores this fall, which was really fascinating that food security, local food security, um, local as in, in my pantry, it's already there. Mm-hmm. is a way that society at large has been dealing with this pandemic. Um, and I think that can be a really beautiful thing when it's motivated by a desire to be closer to your food source rather than panic or, yeah, panic. I've also found myself relating to Marilla's just kind of homemaking as a way of controlling and I think for so many of us who are spending an unprecedented amount of time home, we certainly all have been pushed to think about home a lot. So for me, it's been a lot of very picky and constantly rearranged interior design, just trying to figure out if I have to sit in this corner all day, how do I make it as perfect as possible? How do I have everything I need? How do I feel at peace? You know, and constantly experimenting with that in combination with three other humans who are trying to figure out how to be productive and at peace, how do we fit together? How do we get apart? And in what combinations can, you know, can we all do the same thing in the same room, but is it also possible as a small family in an urban apartment to get away from one another enough that we enjoy being with one another again? And that's also something I feel that is really subtle, but already clear in Matthew and Marilla's relationship is figuring out when to be together and how to be apart and figure out that balance for uh, that kind of roommate and sibling stability. One of the great uncertainties that I keep seeing in our society with the pandemic is how none of us have the option of balanced relationships like we did before the pandemic or like we hopefully will after, where you have to kind of decree somebody as either always with you or nearly never with you. And I find probably most of us get along best with most people with something in between those two things. You're somebody I would like to be with frequently, but not always. Yeah, well, you, this is personal and you can edit it out if you feel like it. I'm happy to share it publicly, but you posted something yesterday about parenting guilt and and uh well if parents didn't want to be around their kids 24 7 they shouldn't have kids and i i've definitely been feeling that that like i've been around my baby every minute of every day since he was born which was five months ago at this point and part of me feels like well that's what having a baby is like i should be okay with it and then i have to rewind and say no actually I thought I was going to be able to leave him with his aunt for a couple hours. I thought he was going to be in daycare three days a week. I thought yeah, we were going to be able to go to mommy and me classes at the rec center. As soon like, as it is safe and legal, I will borrow him frequently. I thought I'd get to do that for you. I deeply understand when my children were born, they were quite premature. So even once they came home, they were, it was winter in Boston. They were sufficiently small and immunocompromised that we still had quite some time before it was wise to let anybody else 
in our home or, or touching them. And I remember my older sister saying, hey, I'm willing to babysit them as soon as you feel ready, but I understand if you're feeling very attached and you don't want to have any, you know, if you don't want it. The moment the doctor said it was okay, like, drove to my sister's house. 13 years later, still madly in love with these two children, but need breaks. I think what's interesting with the pandemic, of course, is it's the collective global uncertainty when what this chapter is about is a very localized, small family's uncertainty. We all deal with uncertainty at all of these levels. It can be completely personal. It can be a joint uncertainty with a spouse or a partner. It can be an uncertainty with your whole community. I know I was one of tens of millions of people openly who spent an entire week this November refreshing news sites, just wanting something to switch from too close to call to please just, just let it be. Even though there was a thing, oh, an outcome that I believed intellectually to be most likely, I had been wrong about such beliefs in the past and I just needed, and that was an interesting thing, sharing that level of uncertainty with tens of millions of uh, US citizen voters. We all have our own uncertainties. Something else that's striking me with the uncertainty specific to the pandemic, and you did plan to make this a pandemic-themed episode when you chose to talk about uncertainty, right? There's no way not to. Step Step one, build your support system, is really different right now than it has been at any point in my lifetime. That while I was pregnant in the part of my pregnancy that happened before March, I was building my support system. I knew which friends wanted to babysit. I was on a wait list for a daycare. Now that I am a parent, my support system is nearly 100% virtual, the exception being my spouse, occasionally my sister-in-law when she's able to quarantine for two weeks ahead of time and our healthcare professionals. Other than that, it's all through a computer screen and that is better than nothing, but usually, honestly, insufficient. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also okay to admit that that is insufficient. And I think it goes back to this idea that support systems can be other people, but they can also be routines. And that's also being shaken up. I find as somebody who lives with other people that, and whose job is primarily extroversion, that I don't generally long for social time in my life, even pre-pandemic. I long for alone time. And I usually got it by long scenic drive. And so when we've had the phases of our pandemic with the stricter regulations about don't even leave your region, that actually has broken me far more than not being in person with people. Because like, we, I can't, I can't leave the city. But I want to leave the city explicitly not to be near anybody. I promise I, I don't want to go be within two meters of people out in the country. Support networks can be people, they can be routines. And yeah, I think that's one of the meta problems with uh, an overly simplistic view of uh, Katie Morton's list, which in her defense, she wasn't overly simplistic about in the complete video, is we're all facing an uncertainty right now that point number one 
build your support system, that's the most uncertain part of the whole thing, is what can my support system be? And how can I interact with it? Um, Absolutely. Well, and to come back to this beloved text of ours, okay. Anne Shirley is part of my support system. Oh, I'm going to start crying. That's weird. <laughs> because these books remind me to do all of these other things that watching Anne practice gratitude in whatever situation she's in, which she's constantly doing, reminds me to do that too. Watching her be kind to others reminds me to do that, too. She's... I don't think she thinks about being forgiving to herself, actually. Reading this book makes me want to be a better person, I guess. So I guess that's how it relates to that point. Watching her go into the pit of despair reminds me when I am doing that. I think it's lovely when we have dear friends in real life to whom we are physically close, who make us be better people and who empathize with our difficulties. But I don't think it doesn't count when it happens to be an 11 year old girl from Prince Edward Island over a century ago who technically never existed. Thanks for listening to Kindred Spirits. Follow us on Facebook at Kindred Spirits Podcast, on Twitter at Kindred Spirits P, and on Instagram at Kindred Spirits P. On our website, kindredspiritspodcast.ca, you can find show notes, links to us on all social media and podcast platforms, and information on how to follow or contact us individually. Thank you to our founding Patreon supporters, Sarah K., Marilyn B., Anne M., Connor H.B., Marie-Andre, and Jennifer O. If you would also like to support our ambitions and help us build our castles in the sky, you too can support us on patreon.com slash kindred spirits podcast, as well as subscribing on your podcaster of choice and leaving a review. Our theme music is Desperates and Across the Causeway from Algoma Highway, composed by Ari Vandeven and performed by the Cygnus Trio, which includes me. You can buy our music and learn more at thecygnustrio.com. Anne of Green Gables was written by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Episodes are written by us, Erica Jacobs-Perkins and Jean-Daniel Odenhat. Kindred spirits are not so scarce as I used to think. It's splendid to find out there are so many of them in the world. Marilla says goodnight to Anne. And Anne says, how can you call it a good night when you know it must be the very worst night I've ever had? So this is not technically advice, but I also don't think I can claim this as my idea because Anne just said it right here. Call things what they are. Call them by their proper names. Call people by the names that they ask to be called. Don't say, well, is that really your name? If someone says, will you call me Cordelia? You say, yes, Marilla. You don't say, is that really your name? Mm -hmm. And when someone is having a bad day, it might be a compassionate thing to say, I hope your day gets better. But saying good morning or good night might be what sends them over the edge. And don't ask how someone is if you don't have time to hear the real answer. So I, I broke from giving someone in the text a piece of advice. Instead, I'm taking advice from the text to give to mostly myself, a little bit to you, 
some to our listeners 